Hello, once again, and welcome to Managing IP's Corner Office podcast. My name is Patrick Wingrove, and I'm Managing IP's America's editor. Uh, joining me today is David Simon, who is the Senior Vice President for Intellectual Property at Salesforce, um, possibly the most recognizable name for cloud-based CRM services in the US and quite possibly the world. David has worked at Salesforce for nine years. Uh, prior to that, he worked at Intel for 15 years in various IP roles, including as the Chief Patent Counsel um, and Associate General Counsel for IP Policy. So he knows plenty about the ins and outs of IP in big tech businesses. Uh, he was a member of the Board of Directors of the Intellectual Property Owners Association, the Coalition for Patent Fairness, and the IP Advisory Board for George Washington University Law School. Today, he and I will be talking, of course, about intellectual property, uh, including managing a diverse array of IP tasks, uh, navigating patent eligibility challenges, the DMCA, and Google versus Oracle. David, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, wonderful to have you. Um, all right, well, to start off with, um, perhaps we can talk about, well, yourself and, and the IP department at Salesforce. So, um, well, let's start with how did you end up in tech IP? Well, I'll go back to high school very briefly because uh, one of my uncles had me talk to a buddy of his who was a fairly senior patent counsel at Ford in the early 70s. And when talking to him, I decided that uh, that sounded like the most depressing and boring thing anybody could ever do in their life. Uh, uh, and then managed to graduate from law school in the middle of the recession and had two jobs available insurance defense and patent law. Uh, so patent law seemed better than insurance defense. And, you know, as luck was have it, it was perfect timing. It's when the federal circuit came into existence and all of a sudden it became a booming field. Uh, and, you know, I pretty much even in private practice was mostly involved with tech companies. And then, uh, uh, you know, uh, when the opportunity at Intel opened up in 97, seemed like a great place to be. And it was. Fantastic. Yes, it does sound like an exciting time to join the world of IP. So uh, so, so now in your, in your current role, what are your responsibilities at Salesforce? So my responsibilities are basically around innovation broadly at the company, uh, both uh, protecting our IP and making sure we won't have uh, challenges from other people's IP. Uh, both on technology and on uh, marketing and sales and uh, commercials. So I've done get to do all sorts of interesting things like, you know, make sure that some little riff we're doing on a, a Hollywood movie is not infringing any IP rights that somebody has in that movie. Uh, for example, and how, you know, how, how far we can go and where do we have to draw the line and say, no, you can't do that. Uh, to, you know, how are we going to uh, patent AI and whether it uh, make, you know, in a particular case, it makes sense to, to patent the AI feature because it may be better protectable through other means, such as trade secrets or just, you know, if somebody doesn't have this data, they're never going to be able to recreate what we've done. Indeed. Okay, excellent. And um, well, how much of your time do you think you spend on uh, on those different things, if, if you were to break it down into percentages? Well, this week, because our big conference is uh, next week, uh, 
I'm probably like 80% on uh, copyright, trademark, uh, and related matters. Normally, it's more like uh, pretty close to 50-50, fluctuates back and forth between, you know, what is the urgent matter of the day. Uh, and one of the nice things about working at Salesforce is you never know what the urgent matter of the day is going to be until it hits. <laughs> right, right. And for those listeners out there who don't know about your conference. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So uh, in, back in the times when conferences were still all virtual, uh, this basically took over the city of San Francisco. A number of streets would be blocked. Uh, no hotel rooms were available. Uh, be 170,000 plus registrants, plus lots of people watching it online. Uh, we've been live streaming it for a number of years. And it's, you know, a big party. There's always a concert for charity. Uh, helping our communities is a big part of the company. It's, uh, we actually donate 1% of our time, uh, our money, and our product sales to that purpose. So uh, it's, uh, that's, you know, we spend time on that too. And it's amazing. We've got, you know, cartoon characters, we've had animatronics, we've had topiaries. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It certainly sounds it. And that, that's called uh, Dreamforce. Right. Excellent. Okay. All right. Well, go, going back to my original line of questions. So how many people do you manage over at Salesforce? So currently I manage uh, 12 other people directly. Uh, and then I plug into virtually all other parts and my team plugs into virtually all other parts of the legal department and the company as a whole in terms of counseling them on the deeper IP issues that come up. And how many patent issuances would you say you get at Salesforce each year? So, uh, you know, the current number is, I'm trying to recall it now, um, it's, uh, I think we were we're, we were over 400. I think it was about 440 something last year. Uh, we just broke into the top 100 of uh, U.S. patent issuances. So we're quite proud of that. But, you know, we're also very focused on because our portfolio is much smaller than many of our competitors. We're also very focused on the quality of that portfolio and making sure those are, you know, 400 patents we think that we can enforce, not 400 pieces of paper. Indeed, indeed. And we'll come on to that in, in a moment. But, um, Obviously, speaking along the lines of, of the technologies that you're uh, working on, what sorts of interesting um, inventions are your, you and your team working to protect right now? Okay. Well, I'll have to up-level that a little bit. We, you know, uh, we've had an AI capability since about 2015 or 16. I forget what year we really started hard on it. Um, and, you know, so we're constantly worrying about a number of issues about you know, what should we patent and what should we not patent? Uh, similarly, in cryptocurrency and uh, related technologies, we're, you know, we've been cited for uh, uh, being one of the leaders in that space. And then, you know, there are some just really interesting issues, like there is a tremendous amount of effort that we put into our user interface. Anybody who looks at our product from five years ago and looks at our product now, they're really not recognizable. Uh, and uh, though they are the same product, actually, underneath the skin. And, you know, how you protect that is, you know, a challenge. And, you know, so we've gotten very much into design patents also and uh, 
you know, also trying to figure out what do we want to protect as trade dress and what do we want to protect as actually registered trademarks. And I understand as well that your CEO, uh, Mark Benioff, um, gets you involved in all kinds of uh, IP projects all the time. Could, could you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, well, you know, one of the both difficulties and, frankly, joys of working for the company is Mark is tremendously imaginative. And he'll come up with these things and you're like, okay, well, give us a minute. We'll figure out how we're going to get it done. Uh, several years ago, it'll be obvious when this was in a minute, I got a phone call uh, from some salesperson I had never heard of saying, you need to do a film production agreement. And uh, I'm like, I need to do a what? You do know who you're talking to. I'm not a creative and we don't do movies. <laughs> and they, no, 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 we're doing a movie. What are we doing a movie on? We're doing a movie on donning and duffing of gear for treating Ebola patients. And why the, I'll leave out the next word, uh, are we doing that? And got back because Mark pl uh, uh, promised the White House we would. Okay, that's a good reason for me to do this at this point. <laughs> and that was the next week in my life. Um, you know, we've had uh, uh, a few years ago, he came up with the idea of, you know, we ought to have characters that really happened by happenstance. They were created for a completely different purpose. Mark saw a couple of them and said, this is really good for our marketing. And everybody else was like, we're a tech company. You know, tech companies don't really do cartoons, uh, but they've become a big part of our life. And, you know, we love the characters and we all have our favorites uh, across the company. And, uh, you know, I'll get phone calls on, can we do this with this character? Can we do this with that character? It's a lot of fun. There was, at least at one point, there was a potential of actually having a, Saturday morning TV cartoon show that went away, probably for very good reasons. But uh, it was an interesting idea. So you know, you just you get exposed to these things, and you're like, "Why are we doing this?" We last two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we announced we're going to be a streaming service uh, for video. Well, that's going to be interesting. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, it sounds like you've got an extremely exciting, perhaps perhaps slightly more varied uh, role than than you might have uh, in. In, in standard, um, <laughs> I say standard inverted commas, um, tech company. Um, wonderful. All right. And then, um, so going back to the patent side of things, um, what are some of your biggest IP related challenges at your company? So, you know, uh, one of the big issues for us is what we really do is help our customers uh, execute their business processes. That's really what uh, our all of our uh, software is about for, uh, you know, we literally have over 6,000 SKUs at this point. That raises a couple of issues. Uh, the most obvious one is what should be patentable. We are very much into protecting the technology on how we implement all this. We're not interested and don't think the business processes should be protected, unfortunately. The office over the years has moved all over the place on this. Uh, and most recently with the prior director and his uh, guidance to examiners is, again, creating lots of problems for us and our customers. Uh, you know, we had one year where we, I think, had six people claim that they had invented two-factor authentication and had the fundamental patent on it. In my view, none of the six had the fundamental patent on it, but we had that. Uh, we've had it on a number of features. You know, uh, well, part of what we do is we provide... 
uh, e-commerce as a service. And obviously, everybody thinks they invented the idea of an e-commerce shopping basket or some little fe feature twist on it. None of these things are patentable, but unfortunately, patents have been issued on them. And you sort of alluded to this um, in that last answer, but, but where do, what is your take on uh, the, patent, the state of patent eligibility in the United States at the moment? Okay, so I think the, you know, the Supreme Court, I think, has been very clear on what it is. I think there has been a problem from some of the lower courts who uh, have their own policy views and may disagree with the Supreme Court. Uh, notwithstanding that, uh, to me, it's, you know, there, so there have been some decisions that are very hard to reconcile with what the Supreme Court did. Uh, and then, you know, my view is, you know, you look at what the patent is really about and is it protecting technology or is it protecting something that people can do in their head, even though there might require holding a lot of information in their head. If it's the latter, it's not protectable. If it's the former, it should be protectable. Uh, obviously, you know, there are places where you have to figure out where the lines draw and they get hard on the edges as they always do. But, you know, that's in every area of the law, quite frankly. Indeed. All right. And moving away slightly from, from that, but obviously related, what are your views on um, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board as well as it stands? Okay. So my experience with it has been it's very good. I'm, I know many of the judges personally. I think they're all, uh, uh, all the ones I know personally are recognized experts in the field. Uh, I think, they, and, you know, having talked to them, they're very, you know, they, they believe they have a mission. And that mission is to make sure that patents are good, valid patents, which is what I think a good patent should be. Uh, and I think they do a very good job. I mean, and by the way, I think the Federal Circuit agrees with me, not that they've asked my opinion, uh, uh, because, you know, you look at the reversal rate and the reversal rate of the PTAB is significantly uh, lower than the reversal rate of district court judges. I mean, granted, there are some complexities in district court cases that the PTAB also doesn't face. Um, the and you know I think it was doing a really good job. I think there have been some problems, uh, you know, in the last couple of years with discretionary denials and the fintech decision, uh, which I think you know I was one of the people who was heavily involved in the drafting of the AIA. Uh, we spent a lot of time, and Congress spent a lot of time crafting it. The act is very clear that you know we can have dual tracks. And we want the dual track and we actually want the AIA track of the PTAB going first, generally, because it's much more efficient, much less costly. And, you know, hey, once a patent's either been, you know, been confirmed by the PTAB, it's going to be pretty tough to attack it. And you're going to have judges who are pretty skeptical about any attack on it. Absolutely. And how has Fintiv affected you um, on, on a practical level as well? Is, is it something that you've been, um, I suppose, is it something that you found to be a challenge or or not? Yeah, well, tell me what court we're in and I'll tell you whether it's a challenge. <laughs> um, the, you know, the big problem I have with Fintiv is not that there may be cases where it would might, you know, if you have a, somebody files somehow a uh, IPR and the case is, you know, going to trial next week, 
that doesn't really make much sense for me. It's hard for that to occur, given that, you know, you have to file the PTAB proceeding within a year being served. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, what I think is really bad is particularly when the uh, PTAB is using what they know to be fictional dates. And this is from Director Yanku's policy. This is, I don't think most of the PTAB judges were too happy with it. Um, but the, you know, when they, it's like, you're going to use this trial date, even though we're in the middle of a pandemic, there are no trials happening. It's clear this case will not go to trial when the judge sent the date. And by the way, some of these judges are now so overloaded, they cannot meet those trial dates. It's very clear. You look at their dockets, they've got hundreds and hundreds of cases. They're not going to trial on that original date. Uh, and, you know, and you're, and you're using that date as the basis for saying, well, the court's going to get to this before the PTAB will. In almost every case, the court has not gotten to it on the date they set or anywhere near the date they set. So this is a fiction and it's a rounds to, and it's playing games with the, uh, with the system and it's not what was supposed to be done. Okay, and I know we could talk about patterns in the PTAB and, and FinTIB probably for hours, but um, <laughs> since we don't have that, I, uh, I know that patents aren't uh, you're the only form of intellectual property that are uh, of a concern to you that, or that you're interested in. Um, so I know that the uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act uh, is a bit of a challenge for you as well. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, everything we host is subject to the, uh, uh, you know, if we want this digital millennium of safe harbors, are is subject to the act. And obviously, since, you know, we can't control what our customers put in their system, in our systems, and we don't even know what they, uh, except very unusual circumstances, what they've actually put in, uh, because our contracts prohibit us from looking uh, generally, is we need to rely on that. And it becomes very difficult. You know, what happened was when I first was at the company, we'd get one or two a month. And so, you know, we would just manually deal with them. It was, you know, a few minutes of work. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, over time, and we started, you know, once we started seeing them increasing, we actually started charting them. And we eventually, the demand got so great, we actually had a vendor build a, we gave them our data, you know, it was, these were all DMCA complaints. There's no confidentiality involved. Uh, we gave them all of our data on it and they built the tool for us. And we used that tool for screening. Yeah, occasionally we have to go and do a little bit deeper dive or there's something really sensitive that comes up where we start questioning what's going on. Uh, but, you know, that's what we use now. And it's, you know, the process is becoming more and more automated and you know, ultimately will be almost completely automated because with the volume we're getting now, that's the only way to do it. Otherwise, I'd have to have a huge team of attorneys who spend nothing but doing time on DMCA requests. And handling DMCA requests, with a few exceptions, are not very interesting. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. I've heard that as well. And while we're on the subject of copyright, but I know it's a, a different subject, really, what do you think about uh, the Supreme Court's a fairly recent judgment in, in Google versus Oracle. How does that affect you and, and what do you think about it? So, uh, you know, I basically think the court got it right. I would have been much happier if the court had addressed it under the merger of idea and expression or the process 
exclusion in Section 102B of the Copyright Act, because those are not factual issues generally. That's a legal issue. It's a bright line. It makes it cleaner. You know, uh, if you're dealing with the ability to, you know, I mean, first of all, a lot of APIs you have the permission to go use. So it's not a problem. You know, first, that's always the first question. Do I need even to worry about the copyright issue or do I have permission to do what I'm doing? But, you know, there are times where you're working on an API where you do not have permission or your customer does not have permission to, that they can share with you. And you have to figure out how you're going to deal with it. And, you know, I think the current ruling is pretty clear that if you're not doing something that's dramatically impacting the copyright owner's market, you're in a pretty good place. You know, there, there's something transformative and transformative is interpreted broadly in this area. And the scope of the copyright is, to, is narrow when you're talking about code declarations, but which is really the key part of the API. Um, but, you know, it's going to be great for a while until we get more decisions. And obviously there are times where you're going to be doing stuff and you're going, you know, you, people are going to do things to either game it one way or the other. Um, in addition to which there are some interesting other issues coming up. Uh, there's a dispute between SAS and I think it's called Woper uh, on what's in essence copyrightable of the computer language. Uh, and that will be a very interesting case too. Well, that does sound interesting. Where, where is that um, being held then? So it's, uh, this is like a, almost as lengthy a litigation as the Oracle Google case. Uh, it started out as a copyright and I think trademark case, but I could be wrong on that, or unfair competition case. In the Fourth Circuit in, in North Carolina and in the UK courts, they ended up on the copyright issues not doing well, the uh, SAS, and they basically dismissed those actions. They then filed a patent case in Texas, I forget which uh, district, and also put in the copyright claims that they had previously been advancing into, uh, and with, the, I believe, the hope that the Federal Circuit would be more sympathetic on the copyright claims. Uh, and that's going up to the Federal Circuit. I think the hearing, the oral argument's going to be sometime in the next few months. So maybe we'll know more in the spring. Okay, we should keep an eye out for that then. Excellent. Yeah. Particularly since Paramount dropped its assertion of uh, a copyright in the uh, one of the uh, alien languages, uh, Klingon. Oh. They, they, they sued somebody at one point for breach, uh, copyright infringement of the, for the Klingon language. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's, that's even too nerdy for me. That's, uh, <laughs> that's saying something. <laughs> right, right. Okay. And then what about um, on the trademark side of things then? What's, uh, what's keeping you awake at night on that side? Yeah. You know, so uh, we have trademark challenges around the world and we're increasing our presence, you know, in many more countries when I first joined the company, 99 point something percent of our business was in 20 countries. Uh, and they were, you know, countries where trademark rights were well known, well respected. And you, you, you knew where you, you could generally figure out what was going on pretty quickly. And we are now, I think we're, the last time I looked, we were up to like applications or registrations in 90 some odd countries. 
uh, and that will continue to go up. Uh, and so managing that has become a bigger issue for us. Understanding our risk profile in those countries, because, you know, I, I mean, uh, Kieran Ballora, my team is a, uh, a recognized experts on trademarks. But, you know, there are countries he does not know the law of. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, and it, uh, there are lots of interesting twists depending on what country you're in. I'm sure, I'm sure. And any, any of note? Uh, well, yeah, I won't say what country it was in, but we had one uh, several years ago in a not a fairly significant country where we had a squatter. And uh, the firm in that country came to us and said, well, this will be uh, really expensive to clean up and uh, we recommend doing all this stuff. And I go, how much does all that stuff cost? And they said it was like $8,000. And I said, how much will it cost us to just buy out the squatter? And they said five. And I said, why are we having this discussion? Just do that. <laughs> Uh, you know, guaranteed result. I won't spend five years in litigation before we win, even if the litigation is only going to cost us eight thousand dollars, which I was a little skeptical of that claim. Um, you know, it's like, you know, my management doesn't want to have that country in question for five years. We just want it to be done. Absolutely. You know? I can appreciate that. All right. Wonderful. Um, OK. And then. What are your plans for the department over the next year or so, or at least in, in the near future? Anything that um, you wanted to mention? Yeah, so one of the things, and this is something we've uh, been increasingly doing over the last two years, is we're using uh, uh, patent data for um, uh, you know assessing our performance in terms of the patent office. We're doing the same thing with, you know, to the council level, we actually share the data we generate. Uh, we happened to have bought a company a few years ago called Tableau, which has all these fantastic graphs, which, you know, you put, plug it in and you start playing with it. And, you know, like one of the things that it, I had never really focused on, but when we started plugging in and playing with it was really good on a systemized basis was claim length. How many words are in there in the independent claim and how many on average? And how many words are there in the, you know, were added during prosecution? Now, there are exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, the more they are, uh, you know, the worse off you're going to be. And you can kind of start looking at it and even going, you know, on short claims. When you have in what we do ordinarily, if you have a word, if somebody submitted an independent claim that was 30 words, that person probably didn't know what they're doing. <laughs> because we actually know the median for us and our competitors on what is at our core businesses, you know, is about 230 words, right? So if somebody got, you know, either it was a really breakthrough invention or they didn't know what they were doing and more likely than not, they didn't know what they were doing because even a really breakthrough invention and in what we do will not be 30 words. Indeed. Right. Well, that, that certainly sounds extremely interesting and I wish you the best of luck all of that and um right well that brings to the end of uh, the corner office podcast well david uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today my pleasure it was a great experience excellent all right take care goodbye okay, bye-bye